live from the heart of the Tennessee Valley here in the Spice Radio Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we've got a good show for you today. Uh, Alabama politicians want to microchip parolees. We're going to be getting an update on the prisons from Alabama political reporters John Glenn. We'll be talking about why Huntsville City School Bus drivers unionized with the Teamsters. Uh, and a lot more. And we'll be taking your calls, folks. If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number, and the line is open. The line is open. We are not as busy this weekend as we have been for the last few weeks when we've had to have the lines off. So this is the week to get your call in, folks. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also send us a text... And you can also send us a text and leave us a voicemail all throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online, but in particular, on our website, tvlr.fm, folks. We are coming out with new content every single day on our website. Not only are we now also putting our clips into written form, you know, doing a a short little write-up about some of our clips, we're also coming out with new articles on our website every single day, folks. Every single day, Monday through Thursday, we have a new, uh, we have at least one new article that is not something that has been, that was on the show. Um, So, really cool stuff. Um, It's a lot of, a lot of cool stuff coming out original reporting analysis and stuff like that in the uh in next week we're going to be running an op-ed about education from an alabama history teacher uh from a rank and file alabama history teacher and we love to do stuff like that um so definitely check out our website bookmark our website tvlr.fm and become a uh subscriber to our daily newsletter we send out because we're putting out so much stuff folks we want a way to get all of it to you every day. And so we have a daily newsletter, Monday through Thursday. You can have in your inbox all of the new stuff that we released that day. And you can sign up to that newsletter, uh, tvlr.fm slash contact. Just make a note in the message form. Hey, you know, I want to be on the daily newsletter. 
and we'll get you on it, folks. That'll also automatically put you on the weekly newsletter that comes out on Thursdays, giving you kind of a weekly recap. Um, and uh, But if you just want to be on the weekly newsletter, then tvlr.fm slash contact and make a note in the message box saying like, yeah, you know, daily, a bit much for me, but give me something once a week. Give me something once a week, and we'll, we'll uh, get that taken care of for you. Um, you can also find us, obviously, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Twitch, TikTok, all at the Valley Labor Report. Uh, just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining donor of the program, then you can go to our website, tvlr.fm slash donate and make a set up an auto recurring donation. That really, really helps us out. Uh, the more that we have, the more sustainable the thing is in the long term. Uh, you can also buy our merch. Uh, Pre-orders are over for the Good Things design at this point, but uh, we, do, we did order about 20 extra. We ordered about 20 extras, so you can go to our store, tvlr.fm slash store, and see if we ordered any extra in your size, and go ahead and place that order. And we have one Join a Union shirt left. That uh, We've had that for months. It's, a, it's red, and it's large, and it's on our store as well. So if you want to get the last one, um, then go ahead and, and uh, go ahead and get it, and I'll send it to you this week. Um, we also have Two more hats. Two more of the uh, Union's Good Thing graph hats. They're pretty cool. Trucker hat. Uh, you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Report. Uh, if you're a member of a union, then definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. Your local, your international, your regional federation, anything like that. Um, think about getting those organizations to sponsor the show. Uh, we are always available to speak to any of these bodies, if they have any questions, uh, or if you're having an annual or a semi-annual or whatever, like some kind of conference or convention or a training session that's regional that we could go to, we'd be more than happy to go and make a and do like a little presentation in front of you know several of the locals. In fact, we have been invited to a couple of different uh, things along those lines in June and July of this year. Um, so we're really looking forward to that. Oh yeah. And, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, you want, you know, if your local members have questions for us, if, uh, you know, you think that people at a convention might be interested in, in learning more about the show and how they can support and how they can tune in, you know, a lot of, you know, surprisingly, there are still some people in unions in Alabama that maybe don't know about us. So, um, not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> right. So, uh, so always welcome any of those opportunities. Um, and, uh, and also if you are a, if you're a teacher, particularly a history teacher, because that's kind of how it gets relevant history and social studies, we, we would be willing to come talk to your class about unions and the history of unions. Um, and we would be willing, and if you're a tech teacher, we would be willing to talk to your students, obviously, but we would also be willing to facilitate conversations and presentations from people that might be more relevant to your tech students, right? So if you have a tech class and, you know, your students are interested in ironworking, well, 
they should really get hooked up with the iron workers union as opposed to go and working for some podunk local contractor that's not going to pay him any benefits that's going to pay him half of the wage rate as the iron workers union that's not going to give him health care all this stuff they should really get hooked up with the iron workers union and so we can hook you up with the business manager from the iron workers local union 477 sponsor of the show and he would come and give a presentation to your tech class about the benefits of trade unions and and how to join them and how the apprenticeship program works. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of went on a tangent, but just want to let folks know that that we are available to, uh, to, to be a resource and as a conduit to other resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just your union, uh, but if you have an organization you belong to, a community group, a, a political organization, and y'all are interested in learning more about unions, hit us up. We'd be happy to talk with y'all. Of course, we'd love to talk about the show and how the show can be beneficial, but about unions in general, always happy to do that. And uh, let me add our usual disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed today in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. My legal advocate hat comes on, and I have to say that every episode. We do welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage all of our listeners to check that out. And finally, for me, as most of you know, we're not media professionals. We're just a few diehard unionists who believe that Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in, whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Absolutely. So we are um, one of the uh, uh, one of the big stories here locally is that the Huntsville City School Bus Drivers just unionized in a huge way bigly as some might say with the teamsters local 402 uh they won an election on march the 8th 131 to 6 super blowout uh we've been able to talk to some of the uh a couple of school bus drivers and uh the teamsters uh business agent joe gronick in the last week or so about the win and they've been able to kind of shed some light on how uh that happened and um you know, uh, one of the really big things is that one of the big things that so there there are two there are kind of two parts to it. Some of the the push uh, towards unionization and a lack of a and and then there's also like a a a lack of a there was a lack of an anti union campaign from the company, which is really which I think you know is obviously important. And so the first thing is, like a lot of folks, these school bus drivers just they didn't feel like they made enough money. Um, they work, uh, 30 hours a week on average, um, according to, um, a school bus driver, Liz Smith, that we talked to, um, 30, week, uh, 30 hours a week on average, and they make $20 an hour. And they can tell that that is below market rate because other school bus drivers' salaries are public because other school bus drivers are public employees, right? As opposed to in Huntsville City, they've contracted this service out. 
and uh, uh, but other cities haven't done that. And so they can look just a little bit uh, a little bit outside of Huntsville city school limits and they can see that the Madison City school bus drivers make 23 an hour, a full three dollars an hour more than Huntsville City school bus drivers. And then on top of that, the Huntsville City school bus drivers don't get any benefits. They don't have like health care or retirement or any of that kind of stuff that you would expect an actual, you know, a career to give you. Right, and, right. I mean, Madison City, those are public school employees, so they have access to the retirement system of Alabama. That's a defined benefit pension. They have access to health care through PHIP, uh, the Public mm -hmm. Education Employees Health Insurance Program. Yep. Right. And they have the due process rights that come with the Students mm -hmm. First Act. There's there's a lot there that's missing when you are right. uh, contracted out. And uh, in addition to school bus drivers only making twenty dollars an hour, they have apparently and I didn't I wasn't aware of this, but I, I guess maybe this is a, a thing that that was around when I was going to school. But they have bus monitors in school in, on school buses right. on some school buses right. particularly when there are like special needs buses bus routes they have bus monitors but then on apparently there are some bus monitors on on uh non special needs bus routes uh yeah it can be a discipline challenge on yeah. a on a full bus sometimes right and and the bus monitor and I was confused I said bus monitor I was like I don't even know what are you talking about what does that mean and it's like a disciplinary and role Right. Yeah, another they, adult in mm -hmm. on the bus to that monitor the children. To, right, that doesn't that isn't you know driving commandeering <laughs> a, a you know however many ton vehicle with the seventy lives. Right, you know somebody who's just dedicated to like watching the kids, basically. Right, uh, which is very very important. If you could only imagine mm -hmm. uh, the stress of driving a school bus through traffic, and then there's yeah dozens and dozens of kids. And uh, what if they don't all behave perfectly right. like little angels? Right. Uh, th that may happen a time or two. Yeah. And bus monitors and, and particularly and it's not only, you know, the the disciplinary issues, but but on the special needs. But like there are health there and are safety needs that have to be, you know, there is care that has to be given there. Health and safety is very yes. critical there. And the bus monitors only make 13 an hour. Ooh. And the uh, driver trainers, they still only make 20 an hour, even though they can work sometimes as much as 60 hours a week. Mm. And they still, they still don't have benefits. So, you know, there are lots of reasons there that, that makes it difficult. And, and Liz, uh, the, uh, the school bus driver that I talked to mainly, she said that she was, um, you know, that she, before the campaign actually started, she was kind of looking towards other employment because she would like to be able to stay as a school bus driver. But, you know, the, the compensation is just not enough to keep you around. Um, and that totally makes sense. But she's excited now uh, because she's she's thinking that hopefully with the union that um, uh, being unionized, that they'll be able to get more and they'll be able to, um, you know, they'll be able to, to make a decent living. And that's, you know, that's important. Um, and so uh, so that's part of it is like the wedges and the benefits, and that's super common thing. And then there's also the thing about how this company, unlike so many other companies, they did not, um, they did not unleash a huge anti-union campaign, uh, which is important. Right. Um, they did the right, decent thing. Yeah. And now, to be fair, 
they didn't do the right decent thing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe the maybe the official position of the union is that they did the right decent thing. But my position as a as a commentary, not as a, you know, representative of the Teamsters or anything like that. But my analysis would be that they didn't do that because the the first student, the company that owns the this uh contract service, it's not because they're so great and and whatever. It's because they have a national contract with the Teamsters. The Teamsters represents first student bus drivers across the country, and they have a national contract setting up, uh, you know, wages and benefits and, su and, and stuff like this. But they also, in the contract, there is a neutrality clause mm. um, that says that they legally can't. Like it would be, it would be a breach of contract for them to go on uh, an anti-union rampage in a union campaign, and so. Because of the power that school bus drivers were, have been across the country, first student school bus drivers have been able to amass, they have been able to, to, to bend the company, to, you know, uh, and, and kind of uh, handcuff them, you know, tie their hands behind their back in the case of these other union campaigns and say like, you know, no, you can't. We're not going to allow you to do that. And we're willing to fight for that to be in our contract. And so that's a really good thing. And that, you know, uh, that's shows that you know winning kind of begets more winning right 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 yeah i i think that's that's very accurate and the thing is like it's not as if the company is restricted in any real practical way what it is is that they are basically required to do the right thing which is to stay right. out of it right. to be neutral to let the employees have their choice and uh, you know, they, they actually, first student actually put out a statement mm -hmm. about the campaign and they said, quote, first student has a freedom of association policy that supports our commitment to our employees and their individual right to choose whether or not they want to join a labor union. We have no conflict with our drivers organizing. We have a strong relationship with the Teamsters, which includes a national master agreement. First student contracts with both unionized and non-unionized non teams and our safety and reliability standards are equally high. So, you know, I like you, like you, I don't want to give like too much credit to any company <laughs> uh, because right. ultimately, as, as you said, this is a testament to the power of the Teamsters organizing nationwide. Uh, yeah. But that's what you want to see. And so yeah. I, I do applaud first student for doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, yeah. because companies frequently don't. And so I do applaud them for that. And I hope that that bodes well for the future. And the, you know, the fact that the Teamsters have a national agreement with this company already, because one of the, one of the anti-union arguments traditionally is like, oh, you don't know what's going to happen. You right. Know? But this is, they have this national contract and the national contract sets out higher standards than they're working under. And so, you know, it's like, it's for, you know, it's a no-brainer. It's really a no-brainer, right? You're almost guaranteed, you know, it's not a guarantee necessarily, but it's almost a guarantee that these school bus drivers are going to have better wages and better benefits going forward because the company's already agreed to better wages and benefits with the Teamsters before, and so why wouldn't they do it here? There's no reason to believe they're not going to do it here. Um, so uh, Joe Gronick told Fox News 54 uh, in an interview with them that they have a meeting coming up in the very near future with workers to have discussions in regards to what's going to be negotiated in their labor labor agreement. And so we look forward to continuing reporting on that, seeing if there's anything in particular that these drivers are interested in uh, fighting for that isn't in the national agreement or how they're going to, uh, you know, just what, what their specific needs are and how negotiations are going to play out. So, 
Um, it's it's going to be. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops, but I, I I don't anticipate. I don't anticipate that this is going to be really a knockdown drag out fight. I think that you know. I think that we're going to have the the bus driver is going to have negotiations. Um, and and I think that they're going to be able to uh get a lot of what they of what they're interested in getting and um and it's going to be a uh something that that both sides can at least be happy with or be yeah. content with so yeah um, and i think it's just it's so important that nearly 200 bus drivers right here in our community their lives have changed for the better mm-hmm. and they are now a part of something bigger than themselves and that's just you know that's fantastic news and that's why we're so excited about it uh, and we really appreciate Teamsters 402 for for going for it. We appreciate these bus drivers, uh, the 131 who who crushed it in this election. That is yeah. just amazing. And, and one of the the Liz, the bus driver that I've that I've spoken to most, she came to our uh, the labor council's the labor council's uh, Thursday Friday event last night. Um, our little happy hour event that we do every now and then. And, uh, she had a, she had a, a shirt that was a Teamster shirt and it said, uh, the wheels on the bus go union now. So that hell was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I noticed that shirt. That was awesome. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I gotta get my hands on it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gotta talk to Joe. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I, I've got to say as a parent of a school age child that I personally feel much mm. better. Mm-hmm. If the school bus drivers have benefits, right? If they have protections, if they are treated like professionals with dignity and respect, right? That is such an important job. Those of us with education background know how important and how difficult that job is. So, yeah. uh, all power to the bus drivers here in Huntsville. Congratulations on your union. Congratulations on the contract that is sure to come. Uh, and keep us posted on this. We we love to see it. Absolutely. So, um, phone number is eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. If you want to uh, add a comment, ask a question, anything like that. Uh, this next story is really really wild stuff here, and that is um, the Alabama politicians want to microchip parolees. Which is is just wild, and so I'm going to back up and I'm going to explain the situation, how this came to be. So this came to be because Representative Prince Chestnut, a a Democrat, filed a bill, pre-filed a bill, and so you know he was so interested in this legislation that he's putting forward that he wants to make sure that it, it gets in, you know, kind of front of the line thing. I'm going to file it before the session even starts. And the bill was to disallow. Well, let's let him explain. Let's let's play this clip and have him explain what the bill does. All right, sure. Let's pull this up here. Um, this bill is a bill that um, uh, seeks to uh, ban microchipping of employees by employers uh, within the state of Alabama. Okay. Uh, so you know. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess I, as a as a union member, as a union activist, um, I am all for more freedom for employees, and and I think that includes the freedom to not be microchipped by your employer. Absolutely. Um, 
Absolutely. I'm all for this legislation. If I was in the legislature, I would vote for this legislation. As he said it. As he said it. We're going to get to a change that came. Um, but, you know, it seems... It's kind of weird. It's a... Uh, it's... It's weird, and and let's, uh, you know, because the question is, is this actually an issue? And so let's let him answer that question, because that question was asked in this hearing where he presented the bill, and so he answers it. So let's see what he says. I'm not going to ask you about companies, but is there any industries that are microchipping employees in Alabama now? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, so, you know, a proactive measure uh, seems kind of silly, but fine, fine. I'm I'm happy to be proactive. I would vote for that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sure. I I get that it's a problem that doesn't really exist yet, but at the same time, but it would be a problem if it existed. It absolutely, would be bad if it existed. And right? frankly, I mean, you know, it's not that often that Alabama politicians are like proactive and in protecting, a good way. especially <laughs> protecting employees. So, right, you know, right. I don't want to I don't want to hate on on no. Prince Chestnut. Mm -hmm. I do do appreciate what he's doing. Yeah. Um. And I think and and. Later on in the hearing, and I didn't clip this, um, but maybe I should have. But later on in the hearing, somebody asked him about because so, th there was another person that kind of recognized like that this is it's a little maybe a little bit silly, um, and and so he was like, all right, so you know you're you've got this thing about microchipping. Are you uh, you know is your next bill going to deal with AI? And he was like, and and everybody started laughing, and then <laughs> Prince Chestnut was like. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I've been reading some stuff and it does concern me. So, you know, I mean, maybe. Maybe. You know? <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, sure, sure. I'm fine with that. Uh, so Prince is our designated like technology. Guy. Yeah. Future yeah. employment problems. Yes. Point man. Yes. He, and, and so, you know, but the, the thing here is that this is even though it's not a problem, it is such a it would be such a gross violation of liberty and personal and bodily autonomy that we just want to be proactive against this heinous, heinous potential imaginary problem. We're going to say it's illegal. It's illegal for an employer to require an employee to, to be microchipped as a condition of employment. That's what this bill would do. Because that would be so, even though it's not happening, even though he doesn't have a single instance of this happening in Alabama, uh, it's such a heinous thing. We just want to, we, we just want to nip this in the bud, put in the bud, put the kibosh on it. We're not going to do it. Um, and so, in response to this preemptive nipping in the bud of a heinous, really diabolical, uh, uh proposition a republican says well sure maybe employers shouldn't do it but maybe the state should be able to do it let's play this clip i want the board and i want us to monitor inmates when they're released if the board of pardon and parole comes up with a, a methodology by which they implant in a chip as opposed to a monitoring bracelet i want them to be allowed to do that Hmm. And allow them to do that, he is trying to do. So that bill was officially amended 
to allow the Alabama Board of Pardon and Parolees to uh, microchip people under their stewardship with no uh, <laughs> with no backlash. For, I mean, the Prince Chestnut was like, yeah, sure, that's a fine amendment. I'm fine with that. This is the guy that's like, and and the and and just just a reminder, you know. Obviously, the employment relationship is coercive. You know, if you're an adult, you recognize that to a certain extent. It is coercive to an extent, right? Because you have to work to live. You have to work to eat. In our society, you have to work for a capitalist, and you have to earn a wage. That's how you survive. And so, to a certain extent, that relationship is coercive. Because if you don't, you die is the ultimate kind of finality, the, the, the conclusion of that logic, right? But the thing that conservatives will say, the free market people will say, is that, oh, we'll, you know, it's not really coercive because you can just go work for a different capitalist. You know, and so or you can become a capitalist yourself. Or you can become a capitalist yourself. Easier right? said than done, but yeah, you could go become a boss yourself and and have other people in a subordinate relationship. Right, and so you know that's the thing that they say, but it, you know, it is not it it's it's not thought terminating. You know, it doesn't it <laughs> it doesn't make the employment relationship not coercive. It just you know, but there is a certain reality there that you know. It's not exactly like you're a slave, right? You are not literally a chattel slave. But that's not the case when you are a ward of the state. When you have been arrested and you, the, <laughs> right? You are literally, like the 13th Amendment allows for slavery for punishment of a crime. You are literally, in certain terms, a slave to the state at the whim of their dictates. And so... The idea that we would allow the state to modify our person is uh, totally, totally Orwellian. It's totally Orwellian. And that is actually, that is what, to the credit of the person in charge of the Board of Pardon and Parolees, Cam Ward, I uh, talked to Jacob Holmes about this yesterday afternoon. He is the state house reporter for the Alabama Political Reporter. He said that after this hearing, he spoke to Cam Ward about this. And, and Cam Ward said, we have no interest in doing this. That is Orwellian. That is, you know, just really, really kind of a crazy proposition. And we're not interested in that. And so that's good. Um, that's good. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. Uh, but it is very disturbing that the that Alabama politicians, Republicans and Democrats, Republicans and Democrats are interested in, are interested in the idea of allowing the state to microchip people. That's just, that's wild. That is a wild thing. But that's, uh, that's the world that we live in. Yeah, I, I just, I, I have no use for that. I, I just do not believe in putting microchips in people's bodies <laughs> against their will. So, uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of Prince Chestnut's bill. Maybe it is a little out there. It's, you know, it's addressing something that doesn't really exist yet. But, I mean, here's the thing that maybe, to his credit, 
the fact that the Republican in the committee brought this up means there is some willingness to do this. Right. Maybe not in the employment situation, but certainly when it comes to convict labor. Right. And that bothers me on just a, like you said, in terms of human liberty, that really mm-hmm. bothers me. And uh, it bothers me that there was no, it didn't, it didn't appear there was really any opposition in the committee hearing to that proposal. So, yeah. yeah, credit to Cam Ward for being clear that at least in his capacity, he's not interested in that. Um, you know, when you were telling me that other day, I, I mentioned to you, at least Cam Ward, I don't agree with his politics. You know, I can't say I've been super impressed with his tenure so far in his current position, but he is not an idiot. He has said reasonable things in the past, including in his time in the legislature. So I'll give him credit for, for not having any interest in this. But the problem is, if you allow it, right, somebody's gonna somebody want to will. It. Somebody right. will want to do it. And I just I, I find that really objectionable. Right. And, you know, the, the big elephant in the room is really um, is really the thing about um, that. This is a lot of this is really, I think, probably it's not been stated, but I think a lot of this is really probably like motivated by this by like a religious idea of, you know, um, the mark of the beast or whatever. And, you know, I think that that's probably right. I've I've been know. hearing e- evangelicals talk about microchips right. being placed in our bodies as the mark of the beast. I've heard that yeah. for at least 20 years. Yeah. I mean, and, as far back so, as I can remember. You know, so it's worth understanding that that's like really. That's the subtext. here. Yeah, that's that's kind of the subtext. Uh, I imagine I would be shocked if it's not the subtext. You know, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's maybe it's possible that that Chestnut is just like really kind of into futuristic stuff. And he's also a big fan of employee freedom. And, and, and so he's there's caught, not, maybe he's caught wind of, you know, yeah. some, some business magazines talking about that sort of thing. And so but that, yeah, but that's my, that would be what I think the subtext is, but I think it is even, you know, as pernicious as it is, the idea that an employer would require a microchip, which is, which would be per- pernicious. That's I would, you know, right. I would be right there. If that actually line. came to be, yeah, that's a red line. Like if that actually came to be, I would be right out there with, you know, the evangelical, like anti mark of the beast people. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not so concerned that this is a mark of the beast as, as I, <laughs> as I am, that this would be infringing on, you know, somebody's Liberty, but you know, whatever we, you know, we can have strange bedfellows. Um, but the idea as pernicious as that is, it is even more so the idea that the state would require it um, as a condition of your freedom, right? As a condition of your freedom, of your freedom to to have a microchip. Um, just really, really gross. Really gross. Um, so we are going to uh, we're going to go ahead and go to a break. On the other side, you know, speaking about pardons and and paroles and and the. Uh, criminal legal system in the state of Alabama. We're going to be talking to John Glenn. We're going to be talking to John Glenn about the uh, the state of Alabama prisons. Uh, he is really on the prison beat for the Alabama Political Reporter, and he does he does really great work. Um, and uh, he does great work, really cataloging the. Um, I mean, on it, like cataloging the evil of, right. of Alabama's prison system, uh, uh, you know, two or three times a week, it seems like he's got an article like, you know, 
another death at, at this jail in Alabama. Yeah. And and that's, you know, it's important that uh, we understand what we're doing to people. Right. Um, so. I mean, Alabama has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country, which has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We lock up more human beings inside the borders of Alabama than almost any other place on earth. And even the United States Department of Justice has found our state prison system to be unconstitutional, as in every single day, every person behind bars, their rights are being violated. It's it's disturbing, yeah. and uh, so it is an important issue, particularly as it is working class people who are disproportionately exactly. bearing the burden of a broken criminal justice system. Exactly. It's not bosses and wealthy people that are going to jail. It is uh, working class folks. So Absolutely. All right, you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. We're going to be right back with John Glenn from the Alabama Political Reporter. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. 
Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live from the Spice Radio studio. We've got a phone number, and the line is open. That number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can call or text the program anytime throughout the live airing, and uh, we might bring you on the air. Feel free to ask us any questions, comment on any of the stories, anything like that. We appreciate everybody watching us online. Uh, we've got Mel and Joe in the Facebook chat, as always. Appreciate y'all listening. Uh, June Buggy, Dan Com, Alex Marquez, Perez, Munez, Diaz, Perez, uh, <laughs> Thoreau Fagundo. Good morning. William Pina from... Uh, Teamster from out in California, Infinite Content, D.L. Cindero. Appreciate everybody. And D.L. Cindero asks if we were impacted by the tornadoes. I was not. I think that everything um, everything was fine up here. Um, is that right, Adam? Uh, yeah, I'm not aware of any. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I slept through it. Uh, so I was not aware of anything quite up in our area. But, you know, before we talk to John, definitely want to send our concern to all those who were affected by yesterday's storms and last night's storms. You know, love and solidarity to all of our brothers and sisters in Mississippi in particular. I know uh, the Mississippi Delta was hit pretty hard. Yeah. All right. Well, so we have on the line John Glenn from the Alabama Political Reporter. He is, uh, you know, he, he writes on a lot of stuff, but uh, he is the most consistent writer, I think probably in Alabama, on the state of our prisons. And so we wanted to talk to him about the latest on that. John, thanks for jumping on the show to, uh, this morning. Appreciate it. Of course, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So first off, uh, you mentioned this um, Frederick Bishop. He is a fellow who was denied parole 10 days after he died. Uh, why would that be the case? Well, there are several contributing factors to this mistake, whether uh, with it happening. Um, it, it's really kind of a communication nightmare, honestly, in the, in the aftermath of all of this, because I honestly think that both the Alabama Department of Corrections and the Parole uh, Bureau of Pardons and Parole, excuse me, um, are essentially trying to trade off blame in this particular instance, because mm. both don't want to admit that a communication breakdown is more than likely what led to this happening. Um, essentially, uh, he... So he dies 10 days prior to his parole hearing, and 
30 days prior to your parole hearing, a officer with the Bureau called an IPO, which stands for, um, it's, it's, in, it's incarcerate, no, that's not it. It's internal parole officer. Yes, that's what it is. They essentially come in and they give a, um, a, a, a an assessment of whomever is coming up for parole um, based on like, are they at risk for flight? Um, and they just give an interview. It's confidential. And so mm -hmm. the only people that really get that information are the Bureau. But nonetheless, 30 days is that window where that IPO is supposed to meet with him. So this would have had to have been after that hearing um, with the IPO. Um, so a spokeswoman of the ADOC told me after this article was published, because initially they just said, well, it was a mistake. We'll take steps to um, rectify this particular mistake. And um, I was told by a, a couple of different people that essentially when, when something like this happens, um, or rather something like this really doesn't happen, but if someone is up for their parole hearing, um, a death certificate and they die prior to that, like a death certificate is supposed to reach the Bureau somehow. Mm. Um, that really isn't the case. What happened, what's supposed to, well, there's like a, there's like a daily, I think it's a, a nightly log actually that the ADSC updates um, that shows, I don't know exactly what it shows, but it has to show who died that particular day or that particular week or something like that. Mm. And the Bureau is supposed to take that information and update the docket, dockets accordingly. Obviously, that didn't happen. Now, that bit about the, the nightly log is what the ADOC spokesperson told me after the fact. And um, again, it's it's just sort of it's a communication breakdown is what happened. And this egregious mistake is allowed to to, to continue. And um, you know, I, I had um, I had a couple of people that at least they, they work for the Bureau tell me that you know stuff like this they've just never seen it happen. Um, and they, again, shock it up to communications and a sort of bureaucratic failure um, on the part of, of both entities. But um, I suppose that's, a, that's a, um, a rounded answer to that particular question. Yeah, well, and I think it's, you know, there I, I don't doubt that there was a communications failure, but also the the idea that, that you know, he's dead and he's being denied parole uh, that's also kind of indicative of the the state of our Bureau of Pardons and Paroles, that they give out so few uh, that they give out so few paroles. Talk to us about can can you talk to us about it? And I, and I, I, I didn't think to, um, uh, to 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 prep you for this to for this question. So this is a new question. And so if, if you don't have the information offhand, that's fine. But but do you know offhand like what the percentage is of people who do actually get paroles and 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 then and I know that it's small and so why is it so small um so for last year it was 10% 10% of those eligible received their parole um which when you compare it to like the 5 years prior um is it's that five years prior, it was like over half of those eligible were approved for parole, and now it's mm. just ten percent. Um, for this year, it's six, I believe, six percent. Um, which, what wow. out of the given like fourteen hundred folks that were eligible, um, and this this current fiscal year, um, that's like what almost a hundred, maybe maybe less. Um, and again, that the reasons behind it are. Well, I don't know. I frankly don't know because it, it doesn't seem very like rational. This whole deal—it's um, entirely possible that it's 
to do with a vengeful board that simply wants to keep people in prison. Um, it could just be that there's like there are stricter criteria for parole than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that information in front of me, but I mean, it's obvious that there's there's a a if there's not a concerted effort, there's at least a uh, allowance of this low a percentage of folks uh, to go for. Uh, go up for their parole. Um, this is actually something I remember a, a, about two days ago during uh, the regular session in Montgomery where they were discussing a bill to cut good time incentives, which had just happened somewhat recently. It passed mm-hmm. the Senate. It's going to the House for consideration, but they were debating it in the Senate. And uh, Minority Leader Bobby Singleton, he come up and he said that, uh, that uh, essentially this focus on good time and, and cutting it was to do with how little parole was being given out to folks um, and that this really wouldn't be a topic of discussion had it not been for the fact that the state parole board just doesn't let people out of prison. Um, mm. So reasons behind it, it's, you know, I, you have to ask those folks and, you know, the attempts that's been made really hasn't given any sort of concerted answer on that. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's egregious is what it is. Well, and and this another, uh, you know, so the a an effort to uh, cut the amount of good time eligibility, uh, you said, passed the Senate, and what? But one of the reasons for that is that, that as I understand it, is that there's this understanding on right wing talk radio that our um, legal system is just simply too liberal. I've even heard comparisons to like, you know, we are, you know, our, our prisons are like more liberal than than New York or California or whatever. And I don't know I don't know what the laws are in New York or California, but it just seems patently absurd the idea that that, you know, 6-7% of people eligible for parole are getting parole and and we have more prisoners than the average state. I think one of the highest per, per capita prison populations in the country, and then our country has the highest per capita prison population in the history of the world. We lock up more people in prison than the Soviet Union did in the gulags, right? I mean, this is you know just a remarkably, just a just a remarkable system of incarceration. Uh, and and but there's this idea that that we're just simply the problem is. That we don't lock enough people, enough humans in cages. And I'm sorry, that was kind of that was kind of a rant, but like, how does that how how does that vision of our prison system match with reality? Um, well, you said it quite literally about. I mean, if if for instance we had more liberal policies, I don't think you would see 10% of folks last year um, being let out on parole. Uh, meaning those eligible being let out on parole. Um, I don't think you would see the mass incarceration that you see, where I, it's upwards of what twenty thousand people, give or take, that are in state custody as we speak. Um, the amount of death, rampant drug abuse, um, murders, suicides that happen in these prisons, and that's chalked up to liberal policies. Again, like all of the stuff that the state has done to um, to organize the prisons. To, to create the current prison system that we have, in a lot of ways, it's also what they haven't done, is in, in some ways a reaction to like previous 
tough on crime policies of the 20th century, the later half of the 20th century, all of which I'd imagine the talk show radio host that you're mentioning would be more in favor of, would mm -hmm. absolutely be in support of. Right. In any ways, you know, depending on how old they're old, they are probably like pontificated on during this particular period. Um, right. But uh, yeah, the, the thing about that good time incentive thing that just passed the Senate, of course, it that was that was actually it was specifically to do with one instance of of a fellow that was let out on good time, who then goes to after about two months after he's released from state custody ends up in Bibb County and shoots two sheriff's deputies in Bibb County, um, mm -hmm. one of whom dies, I think it was Brad Johnson. Um, in that instance, according to state code, according to the, the, um, the rules set in place already for doling out good, good time to incarcerated individuals that, you know, this fellow's name, his name was Austin Patrick Hall. It shouldn't have been released to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't have been allowed to accrue good time. The, the, he had escaped at one point from a Camden work release center in Wilcox County. Mm -hmm. um, and then during that escape, ended up in Oxford, stole a, um, I think it was a city of Oxford uh, um, Ford Explorer or something like that. It was, a, it was a truck of some kind or a car of some kind. Drives mm -hmm. it into Georgia, leads a multi-agency chase into a, a, a neighboring state. He's brought back in and placed in the county jail and still allowed to accrue good time and still allowed to to get let out uh, when in fact what should have happened is that good time should have been forfeited and that's that's under the state's own policy um <laughs> granted the the good time policies were were very ill-defined and ivy sent out i believe this in january a an executive order that better defined them and added uniform standards for them um mm -hmm. but nonetheless like it's that's a failure of the state that instance is a failure of state it's not a failure of policy because again we're talking about we're talking about a incentive program that only 13% of those currently incarcerated are eligible for in the first place and so you know it's it's this is kind of ridiculous frankly yeah yeah it it seems that way to me and so you know there are like you said and like i said there're lots of people in prisons and so Talk to us about the state of our prisons. Uh, one of the, you know, a a very kind of archetypal John Glenn article is inmate dies at such and such prison. I mean, it, those articles come out so often. What? How? How are these deaths happening? I mean, and Frederick Bishop. I don't. I don't know the the conditions of his death, but but how are these deaths happening? And and what are the rates of inmate deaths uh and and then like how are they compare how do you compare that to the rest of the country okay so uh, first to, to answer the middle part of the question because i think that'd probably be the best way to introduce this i think since the last time we spoke at least last time i was on this this show which i believe was in october uh 66 incarcerated individuals have died in adoc custody wow. and Within that period, in the week of Thanksgiving, nine, nine incarcerated individuals died at six different correctional facilities. Um, the day after Thanksgiving would be November the 25th, five individuals, uh, Barry Christopher Culver, Albert Jackson Sorrells, Jimmy R. Hurst, and Jason Hopkins, and then there's one, one other individual, I think, I, I seem to remember, but I can't remember his name, all died that same day. And... Uh, among those, for instance, 
Albert Jackson Sorrells. He's like 57 at the time of his death at Ventress. Um, he was quite literally left to rot on his bunk. And this is according to uh, the Montgomery Advertiser, Evan Molinas, who's an excellent writer on the subject. He did a story about this. Um, also uh, among those deaths was uh, a 22-year-old named Cameron Holyfield, who after he died, and apparently the autopsy shows that it was an overdose, um, he was buried at Limestone Correctional uh, facility at a pauper's grave without consent or knowledge of his family. Now, mm. he had died at Staten Correctional Facility, which is like 170 miles to the south, give or take, mm. on Thanksgiving Day. And he gets buried all the way up in the north of the state in a pauper's grave, and nobody knew about it. None of his family members knew about it. And this is all, by the way, when they are like primarily located in like Mobile County, give or take, and then mm. I believe his, his stepmother lives out west someplace. Um, and so there's my understanding, at least ADOC policy was that you're supposed, if you're going to, if the family can't afford a grave and the state gives them one, it's supposed to be placed at a location where it's, it's convenient for them to visit. But, you know, right. by every indication that, you know, they just, they didn't get in contact with them. Um, and like so often this happens, um, another incarcerated individual who was in this, was in Staten with um, Mr. Holyfield notified his mother called her in the early morning that thanksgiving saying hey your son just died hmm. no. um also there was a that particular week there was an overdose i seem to remember of this of, of a 20 year old who he had overdosed that week and, and taken to a, uh, an area hospital where he, he recovered and, and was returned back to to uh prison uh, his name was eddie richmond and then i think less than a month later in december he ends up dying um and you know I, I haven't gotten an official autopsy on that, so I, I can't speak to the manner of his death. But, you know, in total from last year, it was, I believe, 270, 270 people died. Um, wow. And that, that's according to um, statistics from the IDC that uh, the Montgomery Advertiser obtained. And so far this year, it's been 31, 31 fatalities. Um, that both of these numbers, like, Last year's numbers may be more concrete, but especially this year's numbers shouldn't be taken at face value. Those numbers will most likely go up. But, um, you know, last year was already the largest loss of life in state corrections history since 2002, which, wow. if I'm not mistaken, was when they started taking stock of, like, how many people were actually dying in prison. I, I have no way to verify that last bit of, you know, but wow. at least since 2002, which is what Appleseed said. Um, so as to the manner... I, I seem to remember the, uh, the Equal Justice Initiative estimated in, in December of last year that of the folks that had died that year, 18 had died of homicide, 23 were suspected fatal overdoses. Um, again, these are most likely higher. Um, and, you know, I, there was, a, there was a, a vigil, there was a rally that was held during the State of the State in Montgomery, and Lauren Farina, who's the director of the Woods Foundation, uh, she said that the, the state of Alabama not only has the highest in-custody death rate in the country, but also the highest uh, in-custody murder rate and the highest uh, in-custody suicide rate of any state in the union. And, you know, I, given who she is, I absolutely believe that's the case. Um, as to, you know, how this keeps happening, it, it goes back to the overcrowded nature of the facilities, the fact that there are very few correctional officers actually – they're present 
doing their jobs in those particular facilities. They're overworked, underpaid, even with even with the uh, the, the wage increases and such. Um, these facilities are dilapidated beyond recognition in some cases, um, where you again you have hundreds and hundreds of people crammed up into dorms, sleeping on top of each other, um, and this is allowed to persist for years. Um, I hope I answered all the. Yeah, no, you you did, and what? That's it. Y- yeah, and one of the ways that Alabama politicians are seeking to remedy this issue is by building a huge mega prison. What are your thoughts on the degree to which that will help the problem? Well, it it's well, it's not going to increase bed space. That's already been proven. Um, wow, really? You know, most of the well, I can't remember exactly the metrics, but the, the two new facilities won't increase. Well, they'll increase it, but it's still, it'll still be overcrowded is what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Um, if, I have to go back and look at that particular metric because it, um, uh, Josh Moon, our columnist, was the one who, who found that out. I haven't been able to, to, to find that just yet. Regardless, um, one, of the, um, one of the lines from uh, Democratic Party members in both the House and the Senate when um, the initial funding package was going through was that, Look, you're you're not going to fix the culture of this. I mean, you may make some nice, spangly new prisons that have all sorts of different, you know, yeah. extracurricular activity rooms, rehab facilities, whatever. But at the at the end of the day, I don't, you know, they weren't convinced that this was going to fix the underlying problems of a, of a culture that allows this to happen. Um, so, and John, correct me if I, I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong here, but. I, my understanding is the Department of Justice has also been pretty clear that you simply can't build your way out of the problems that they've identified. Yes, that's true. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, and again, it you know, I, I I can't I can't name personally uh, an instance of of a state building mega prisons uh, and being able to dig them dig their way out of a horrendously violent and lethal correctional uh, correction system. I, I can't name a, a, a state that has been able to do that just by building new prisons. Um, I mean, that being said, it's, it, it's true to say that like these, these facilities need to be at least renovated at the very least. Mm. And that new facilities probably sh- should be built in place of, of older facilities. Um, but the, the pro- that's one of maybe four problems, like right. critical critical problems that, you know, just building new things, new prison facilities will not fix. And speaking of building new prison facilities, the price tag of this new mega prison has increased by an inordinate amount. Talk to us. How, how much has the price increased by and, and how did that happen? So, yeah, so it is increased. They, they set the cap at $975 million, so it's nearly a billion dollars. And the original cap, which I, I swear to God I, I knew at some point, it's it's 600 and something odd billion. So it, it's increased almost by 50%, give or take. Um, wow. And the reasoning behind that, at least, as, as, as I've been able to, to conjure, um, both – it was, it was Speaker Ledbetter and State Senator Greg Alberton. After the special session on ALPA funds finished, they they cited uh, inflation, i.e., mm. price increases, as the reason that 
this these construction the, the construction specifically the Elmore site um, was going up the price of that was going up um, undoubtedly you know this is most likely a factor but mm. like after that we kind of have to delve into more or less the speculative side because like the, so the funds come from state general fund budget as well as a 400 million dollar uh, injection from COVID monies and then of course there's the bond issue that came out um, so that state bond issue fell short of its initial value bill, like something of, like $200 million or something like that. So it generated only $409 million in funds out of a, uh, a bond issue that was supposed to be like $750 million. Um, so that's one thing that could be to, to offset the downfalls of that, that bond issue. Um, another thing, it could be something to do, frankly, with the construction of it. There's, there's something um, at the site that is 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 causing this construction to inflate price-wise because an mm-hmm. unforeseen structural issue, for instance, they, they have to take care of. I, I put a story in, I believe it was in January, where um, two separate people with knowledge of this particular construction site in Nomore County uh, said that there were multiple sinkholes found at these sites, and that's caused work to be stopped oh. and environmental assessment to come on right. the underlying soil and on this to be, con- uh, be conducted. And that the preliminary results of that examination said that um, it was like an underground stream system or something running beneath the construction site. I, I have never been able to confirm this with the ADOC because they vehemently denied it initially, and they still deny it. Um, that you know there were no sinkholes, work has not stopped. Hmm. Um, Commissioner John Ham and Senate Minority Leader Bobby Singleton both also said that you know that wasn't the case. I mean Singleton said he, he personally went out to the site and there were no sinkholes um you know there's no structures being built at the facility at the moment well i shouldn't say that it's it's rather that there hasn't been any meaningful like construction of the site in terms of like buildings there isn't there isn't you go there and it's a flat field massive massive area um where at least the last time i was there there's a sort of a moat running around it and there's water collected at the, the far end of that moat. Um, there's flags placed out there. Um, there's Cadell construction trailers that are on site. There's, there's tractors. Um, I mean, the last, the last major bit of construction where you could visibly see people out there was when a construction company in Montgomery came out and, and leveled that whole area flattened the, the, the land for the construction. Um, now I haven't been there in a while. I haven't been there since January. So things right. might have might have changed. That being said, last time I was there, there was no meaningful indication that that work was being done. And if work was being done, it wasn't. It just wasn't being done in in the manner in which I think the state anticipated to. Mm. <clears throat> well, John, is there anything else that you think uh, that that you that we haven't hit on that you think is important for folks to know about the state of our prisons or our uh, you know legal system? Um, I mean, just that they continue to be deadly and um, not cost effective. We have an incarcerated population that is growing increasingly old. Um, not a lot of people are being let out of prison. Um, and this this narrative that it's to do with liberal policies, especially, or policies that, that don't fall within the purview of a tough-on-crime stance um, is, is ridiculous. Frankly, it's ridiculous. But other than that, I think that more or less covers it. 
John Glenn, uh, reporter for the Alabama Political Reporter. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for talking to us. Yep. All right, folks, just a reminder, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We're going to take a break and be right back uh, with the rest of the Valley Labor Report. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. 
Local 366, feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. Our phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can call the show, get on the air now, or leave us a voicemail throughout the week. Also wanted to make sure that we get this ad read in. We haven't got it in rotation yet. Sorry about that, folks. But... We appreciate the support of our sponsor, our new sponsor, the United Auto Workers Union. So uh, do you work in an auto manufacturing plant? Are you tired of taking pride in your work without getting the respect you deserve? If you are, then consider joining the fight to unionize. Auto workers across the industry are coming together because with a union, we can negotiate for the pay, benefits, and security that we deserve and can help sustain our families. In union plants, workers bargain for long-term wage increases, competitive bonuses, and more affordable benefits. You can join the growing wave of organizing today. Find out more and contact us at Uniting Auto Workers on Facebook or contact the UAW Region 8 in Lebanon, Tennessee by going to www.uawregion8.net. That's uh, www.uawregion8, that's the number eight, dot N-E-T. A better future is ours. All right. Really? Yeah, yeah, really appreciate the new sponsors. Appreciate yep. all of our sponsors. And, uh, you know, before we get into our next segment, I just wanted to to talk a little bit about you know, for those of you who don't know, we air live on WVNN. Maybe some of you listening are, are listening that way right now. Uh, but I know a lot of our listeners tune in later as podcast or tune in through YouTube. So we're on WVNN, which is the right wing talk radio station in Huntsville, Athens listening area every Saturday from 930 to 11. You know, the main show. Our overtime airs at 11 o'clock that is online only on youtube and facebook for those of you who don't know uh we got our start on wvnn which oddly enough is the birthplace of sean hannity and home to all sorts of reactionary propaganda that we find highly objectionable but we think it's important to get a different perspective out there to multiple audiences and we're happy that a portion of the show is replayed during the week on WZZA, the historic black radio station in northwest Alabama, and on WHIV, which is a community radio station in New Orleans. We released the full episode on Spotify, Apple, and all the various podcasting apps. So please do subscribe to us on your app of choice and give us a good review. That's an easy way to help. And throughout the week, the clips of the show are released as standalone videos on YouTube and in some cases even TikTok. So if there's a specific segment or interview you want to find, we try to make it easy for you. And just do us a favor, hit subscribe, hit like, because all of our content is free, right? And we think that's important to keep it free. So special thanks to all of you who donate, all of you who comment and call in, all of you who've liked us, shared us, reviewed us. 
Your engagement on social media and the podcasting apps really does help. And that's a quick, easy, and free way to support the program. Uh, I know also there are folks who have tagged folks on Twitter to listen to us. Uh, I believe Infinite Content I saw had, had reached out to other programs. If there are other programs you listen to and you'd like to see us connect with them, hit them up. We're happy to to be guests on other programs, and I'll mention that in a second, but uh, we're happy to do that and collaborate with any anyone really wanting to collaborate with us. So if you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for the Southern working class, please consider supporting us however you can, and please share with your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the members of your union. If you haven't mentioned our show to them, let them know. Let them know about the Valley Labor Report. We know there's a lot of good causes to support, and our audience are working folks with limited incomes. So if you do find value in our project and you can chip in a couple bucks, it would really mean a lot. We've got some great stuff planned as we grow the project, and we just can't do it without you. And on that note, I wanted to mention uh, some folks are aware, but maybe not everyone is aware, that we have started a new weekly episode on Thursday mornings called Shop Talk. Shop Talk is dedicated to labor education, history, and training, right? So we're going to keep all the news and commentary. The more political stuff is going to stay on Saturdays. Thursday morning Shop Talk is really more of a, uh, you know, an educational series. And the goal there is that every month there's at least, you know, an episode or two that unions can share with their members to supplement their training and, and professional development programs. So for the first episode of Shop Talk, uh, I actually went into a little a little dive into the Walker County teacher strike of 1979. It's the first teacher strike in the state of Alabama, to my knowledge. It was also a successful strike, and it involved not just the teachers, but the support staff as well, you know, similar to uh, Los Angeles schools and what's been happening there. So that's the kind of labor history, especially local labor history and Southern-themed uh, labor history that we'll be doing on the show. Uh, last week, I spoke with Joe Demanuel Hall from Labor Notes, and this was more of a training episode. We, we went really deep on Stewart's Corner, which is something that they put out in their magazine, Labor Notes has a lot of stewards training uh, resources on their website as well. So we talked all about that. How can Labor Notes help you if you're a steward, if you're interested in being a steward, uh, if you're just interested in getting more involved in your union period and you don't know where to start. We talked about Labor Notes and the resources they have available. This week, uh, I did an episode all about how to get engaged as a new member. Because we hear that from folks pretty regular, folks who join the union or folks who are, you know, in a new union shop or maybe folks who've been members for a while but have never really gotten involved. And they ask, how do I get involved? Where do I start? What do I do? Right. So we did an entire episode this week on how to get involved as a member in your union. Right. And this was tailored towards individuals. A whole separate episode could be about how unions themselves can do a better job engaging their new members and getting them involved. I'm really excited about some of the episodes we have coming up. Uh, I'm speaking with the Alabama Channel on uh, setting up an interview with them to talk about 
how they monitor the Alabama legislature, and how you as a union member or as a community activist can learn the legislative session, the legislative process, uh, and learn a little bit about how that works and how you can get involved. Uh, next week, I have a very exciting episode planned. Max Frazier from the U University of Miami, a great labor historian, is coming on to Shop Talk next week. You don't want to miss that. He's got a new book coming out called Hillbilly Highway, uh, which is all about the making of the trans-Appalachian uh, white working class. Uh, he's written for The Nation and, and many other publications. And um, he is also a, a member of the Communications Committee of LACHA, the Labor and Working Class History Association, which I'm a proud member of. So really looking forward to next week. So for those of you who... Uh, haven't picked up on it yet, you, you know, you, you haven't uh, listened to any of the Shot Talk episodes, next week will be a great one. Uh, hopefully you can go back and check out the last couple episodes we've put out. Uh, as with our main show, it comes out as a podcast, you know, a few days after it airs. So it airs live Thursday mornings online uh, as a podcast a few days later. And I really hope it will be helpful for folks. I hope that folks who have a passion for labor history We'll really dig some of the material, uh, and, and particularly the training aspects, the educational aspects. I want to uh, really be a resource for folks. You know, uh, some of the videos that we've done that are our most popular are some of those educational videos, the Unions 101. Uh, you know, Jacob was reminding me of a, a video he did with David Story, our founding father of the show about how to uh, negotiate contracts. And it's an old video. The, you know, the quality is not as great as far as audio and video, uh, but it still gets a lot of views, and that's because it's, it's evergreen, right? It's, a material, it's material that folks will always uh, be interested in and, and have those questions. So uh, you know, if you are looking to get involved in your union as a new member or just to get newly involved, check out this past week's episode of Shop Talk. And uh, also on that note, this week, I was a guest on America's Workforce Radio with Ed Flash Ferentz. I uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, Jacob has been a guest, what, two or three times? Maybe more? I, I, I think at least three. Yeah, <laughs> Jacob is a, is a recurring guest, and he had the idea that, well, I should get on there too. And so we made that happen. So we really appreciate America's Workforce Radio I uh, believe it was Wednesday's episode, so check out Wednesday's episode. You know, just like our show, it is available as a podcast. Uh, my interview was towards the end of the show, and I had a chance to talk about the UMWA strike being, you know, obviously being the biggest Alabama story, and mentioned the uh, Teamsters win here in Huntsville City. Got to talk a little bit about the Valley Labor Report and our expansion plans and our website and the reporting we're doing on TVLR.fm. So uh, definitely check out America's Workforce Radio. Check out the, the episode from this week. Uh, it was a great opportunity and, you know, love to do that. So if you have any programs that you listen to and you think, well, maybe Jacob and Adam should be on there, let us know. Let them know. We're happy to make that happen. We are, we are down to spread the gospel of solidarity uh, wherever they'll let us. And, uh, of course, we're, we're happy to promote the Valley Labor Report because we believe that we're doing important work here and filling a void in the media. Uh, 
So, you know, all we can do is just try to expand that audience and expand that reach. And we appreciate everyone who's helped us do that. Absolutely. Uh, we've only got a few more minutes left in the main show. So I'll just do this uh, quick hit about a resolution to um, some citations that Hyundai received. You know, I mean, the, the Hyundai supply chain in Alabama is just really is uniquely um, bad, for lack of a better word. Uh, not only are they exploiting children, not only are they subjecting their workforce to racism on the floor and in the boardroom, uh, it's also a dangerous workplace. And, um, and this also showcases, this case uh, is illustrative of just how, you know, how employers get away with so much stuff because this is a resolution in 2023 of an incident that happened in 2016. In 2016, uh, the Department of Labor in uh, a, a week or so ago had a press release saying that an administrative judge, uh, an administrative law judge affirmed citations that an Alabama automotive parts supplier pay $1.3 million in penalties after a 20-year-old worker's 2016 death. The Hyundai-Kia parts maker, June LLC, failed to protect workers from crushing and other hazards. Uh, so this was released from Cassetta. The Independent Occupational Sa Safety and Health Review Commission has affirmed citations issued by the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration to a global auto parts supplier after the 2016 death of a 20-year-old machine operator at an Alabama manufacturing facility. Mm. Uh, that decision comes after June LLC, operating as Agent USA, contested OSHA citations after an investigation of how an employee at its Cassetta, at its Cassetta facility suffered fatal crushing wounds in uh, cr crushing injuries in June of 2016 in a robotic machine. OSHA inspectors learned that the machine operator and three co-workers entered a robotic cell on the assembly line to clear a sensor fault when a robot inside the cell restarted abruptly, crushing the young woman inside. Mm. Its inspection led OSHA to cite the company for 51 safety viola violations, including 48 willful violations. On February 10th, 2023, an administrative law judge upheld the majority of the violations that OSHA issued. Agent USA will pay more than $1.3 million to address the violation. I mean, it's just really, really wild stuff here that it's taken seven years to come to a resolution on this. When it, it seems, from all of, everything that I've read about this, it just seems totally clear that there were issues and the idea that it would take seven years for something like this to get resolved is, right. is just disgusting, really, really I, disgusting. I, and I know we've got to move on to plugs, but I, I just got to put this quote in here from the OSHA regional administrator, Kurt Petermeyer. He said, failing to lock out equipment causes far too many serious injuries and deaths. In this case, a young woman lost her life because her employer took shortcuts to minimize downtime and maintain production. Just just awful. Yeah, really, really disgusting. But the thing has been resolved at this point. Uh, they now have to pay a $500,000 fine and $1 million in restitution to the deceased woman's estate after the company pled guilty. 
So um, obviously, it's not going to bring the woman back, but hopefully, that brings some amount of uh, some amount of material comfort to the family. Um, Absolutely. So with that, uh, folks, we're going on into the second half of the program. We're getting off of the radio. Uh, find us on YouTube, Facebook, where you can continue listening to us. Uh, as we're going off the air, we have a couple of plugs. Just a reminder that um, uh, the Alabama AFL-CIO has a roadkill barbecue on the 5th, uh, where we're going to be talking to some politicians about uh, why they should not try to hurt working people. It's going to be a real uphill battle, but we'll see. Uh, the grand opening of the Automotive Free Clinic will begin at 1 p.m. on April 15th in Prattville. Uh, it's going to include live music and food, so consider going to that. You can find out more about them on their Facebook page, the Automotive Free Clinic. Labor Notes obviously continu continues to have online trainings. Find out more at labornotes.org. Go to their events page. Um, get on our email list, tblr.fm contact. And with that, we will see you next week.